Let us join our hearts together in prayer. Almighty God, eternal Father, Lord of heaven and earth, we salute you this morning and we thank you for the mercies of this new day. We thank you for life and health and family. We thank you for our daily bread and safety. We thank you for Sabbath, rest, and for the invitation to meet you today, to meet with the saints and to join our voices together to worship you. We pray that you would inhabit the praise of your people. We hope you are pleased with our songs and our prayers. And we ask that you would send us your Holy Spirit so we can worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, we confess that our hearts are often defiled with hatred and lust and greed and laziness. We confess that love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control are all too rarely seen in our lives. We come here today to worship you and to be fed by you. We ask that you would grow up in us the fruit of the Spirit. We pray today for Lorraine Lind. We pray that you would heal her body. We ask that you would relieve her pain and anxiety and loneliness while she is in the hospital. We pray for her son as he comes alongside of her to aid her during this time. We pray for Barry Hofstetter and we ask that you would strengthen his body and sustain his spirit. We ask that you would give his doctors insight into his condition and lead him to full health. We pray for Crystal Goretti. We pray that you would clear her mind and heal her brain. Guard her spirit in this troubling time. Be a light in her darkness. We ask as well that you sustain Jordan as he is separated from her at this time. Bless their children as they find refuge with the Bramers and give the Bramers an extra measure of strength to meet the challenges of the ministry that they have taken on with great joy. Comfort this day, Naomi Trask, in the loss of her brother, Darrell. May the sure and certain hope of the resurrection be a comfort to that family. We pray for the president and for those who surround him who have been infected with COVID. We ask that you would preserve their lives. We ask that you would preserve the peace and the stability of our nation. We also lift up before you Kristen and Rachel and Joan and Greg, Teresa, Al and Dennis. We ask that you would meet each need which is known to you. Lord, above all things in this life, we need you. And we ask that you would be a light in each dark corner, that you would be present to your people and that you would bring glory to yourself. We pray for Valley Christian School. We pray for Susan Kaler, for the faculty and the staff, for the school board, for the many students and their families. We pray that you would keep us all safe from 
the COVID virus. We pray that you would grow up in us an ever greater love of you and of your kingdom. We pray for those who do not yet know you as Lord. Hear us now as we name their names in the quiet of our hearts. These prayers we make in the name of Jesus who taught us all to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. It's seltzer, not beer. Okay, our second uh, reading this morning comes from, oh, Acts chapter 9. I will read verses 10 through 19. Acts chapter 9, verses 10 through 19. Uh, again, the, the reading is in, uh, in your bulletins. Hear the word of the Lord. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias? Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas in Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and he entered it and placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. This is the word of the Lord. Sometimes God calls us to speak to people we don't like. Sometimes God tells us to do good things to people we don't like. And when I say people we don't like, I mean people we don't like for a lot of very good reasons. Let's tell the truth. We don't like everybody. Nobody does. Some people we don't like because they're jerks, because they're loudmouth bullies, because they call other people names, because they insult us and our families. We don't like those people. 
Some people we don't like because they've hurt us or our families, because they've talked about us behind our backs, because they've stolen from us or exploited us or abused us. Some people have injured us. We don't like these people. It's sad, but it's true that all of us have some people that we don't like in our lives. I wish it weren't that way. I wish we were only surrounded by good and kind and nice people, but that's just not reality. All of us have people that we don't like who are part of our lives, and I mean people that we don't like with good reason. So I want us to pause for just a minute to name those people that we don't like. Not out loud, of course but in the quiet of our hearts. And you have a bulletin there in front of you, and maybe you want to just jot their names down. I want us to take a few moments right now to think about the individuals who are part of our lives, unavoidably, who we don't like. Is that enough time? I don't know how long your lists are. Now, those lists, you better stick them in your pocket. I don't want to see any lists of enemies, okay, when I leave here, okay? This is just between you and God. So what do we do with those people? What do we do with these people that we don't like? What do we do with these people who are really our enemies? What are we supposed to do with them? Now, I want to do just one more mental exercise. You didn't know coming to church was going to be so taxing. I want us to think for just a few moments about what we recall from Scripture. No using your Bible, no Googling right now. I want you to think for a few moments about those passages of Scripture that you recall which speak to us about what we do with our enemies. The Bible, of course, is wonderfully honest and straightforward about the human condition, and the Bible recognizes... We all have enemies. Let's remember for a few moments what it is that the Bible says uh, about our enemies and what we're to do with them. You can take a few moments and jot down some notes there. You ready? Okay. Well, let me give you just three touchstones that I think are representative of what Scripture says about our enemies. Touchstone number one. We have the account of the Exodus uh, when the children of Israel 
escape from their slave master enemies in Egypt. Uh, they, of course, go out into the wilderness. They meet God. They receive the law of God at Mount Sinai. And they begin to move forward to the promised land as a, as a, a, a coherent group of people. But before they enter into the promised land, God tells the children of Israel about a messenger who's going to instruct them and guard them on their way. God, of course, is talking about Moses, uh, through whom God will continue to communicate with the Israelites. This is Exodus 23, verse 22. God says, if you listen carefully to what the messenger says and do all that I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies. I will oppose those who oppose you. Now, obviously, the children of Israel are going to face plenty of enemies on their way to the promised land on their, during their time in the promised land. And God promises the Israelites that if they do what God tells them to do, the instruction that they're going to receive through Moses, that God will be the enemy of their enemies. God's going to oppose the people who oppose the Israelites, that is, if they listen carefully and if they do what God says. Now, I don't know what you think about that, but I think that's tremendously encouraging to know that God has your back in that kind of way. One of the playground taunts that I remember from my school days, I don't know if they use it anymore, one of the playground taunts from my school days was, yeah, you and whose army? Okay, bully comes up to you and he says that he's going to take your your lunch money and you say, yeah, you and whose army? God promises that he will be the army backing his people against the enemy. If they listen carefully and do what he says. This of course happens many times uh, in scripture. But perhaps the most dramatic time. We read about in 2 Kings chapter 6. When Elijah and Elisha are in a city that's been besieged by an enemy army. Their lives are at risk. But God opens the eyes of the prophets so that they can see. That while there are many Aramean soldiers encamped around the city, on the hills ringing the city, there's an army of angels with chariots of fire. They're vastly outnumbered from the human perspective, but Elijah and Elisha have victory that day, they and the army of God. What an amazing promise that God makes to his people. If they listen to him and obey his words, he will fight on their side. He will fight against their enemies. So that's one thing that the Bible says about our enemies. God promises to be the enemy of our enemies if we listen to him and if we obey his word. Touchstone number two. The imprecatory psalms teach us about enemies. Now an imprecation is a kind of curse. It's a spoken curse. There are about 20 of the Psalms, which are known as imprecatory Psalms, because they curse the enemies of God. As you might imagine, these Psalms don't get preached very often these days, because hurling curses is something that we don't do much in church. I mean, maybe we do it on the debate stage, but we don't do it in church. Let me give you an example of an imprecatory 
psalm. This is Psalm 69. It's a psalm of David. Uh, verse 22 through 28 reads this way. May the table set before them become a snare. May it become a retribution and a trap. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs bent forever. Pour out your wrath on them. Let your fierce anger overtake them. May their place be deserted. Let there be no one who dwells in their tent. Charge them with crime upon crime. Do not let them have a share in your salvation. May they be blotted out from the book of life. And not listed with the righteous. That's a prayer by King David. That the enemies of Israel might be damned. You can see why this doesn't get preached very often. But in the New Testament, this psalm is actually quoted by Jesus. It's quoted by John and by Paul and by Luke. You thought I was going to say Ringo. And in each case, the psalm is quoted just to let us know how despicable, how damnable are the enemies of Christ. So as Christians, what we can learn from the impeccatory psalms, from these biblical curses pronounced against God's enemies, well, let me... Let me preface my comments about the imprecatory psalms by admitting that I've not made a thorough study of them. I'm not an expert in this area. But let me give you my general sense of how these kinds of passages are to be dealt with. Three things I want to say. First, I would say that the inclusion of imprecatory curses in the pages of Holy Scripture is to us a sign of how serious matters of righteousness and unrighteousness really are. God is serious about his law. God is serious about holiness. God is serious about justice. And people who flout the law and holiness and justice are in terrible danger. God's wrath is real. And the intensity of God's wrath against wickedness and injustice is as intense as God's love towards holiness and justice. When we hear the Holy Scriptures curse the enemies of God in this way, that should be a warning to us to never find ourselves fighting against God. So that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say, uh, that the presence of these horrible curses in Scriptures teaches, uh, is that though it is appropriate for them to be in Scripture, that's not a license for us to utter similar curses. While it might be okay for King David or King Jesus or the apostles to utter these horrible words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I think you and I should be far more modest and more cautious. I think you and I would do more good, not only in our lives, but in the lives of the world that we move in, if we kept our eyes on our sins rather than on the sins of other people. I think it's okay to denounce the sin in your own life. Though no Christian should ever condemn themselves or curse themselves. That's, that is never appropriate. To curse another person, however, that's to stand in the position of God. 
And while Jesus one day will judge all people, it is not our job as Christians in this life to judge or to condemn anyone else. We leave that to God. And third, these imprecatory passages in scriptures open our eyes to the supernatural, to the spiritual reality that's going on behind uh, the ordinary everyday events that we can see with our eyes. There is a spiritual, eternal dimension to the events of ordinary life. I think these imprecatory psalms give a weight and a gravity to our lives. So we have God's promise to be the enemy of the enemies of his people. That's one thing we learn. And we have the imprecatory psalms, which are curses called down upon God's enemies. And that gives us a a sense of the spiritual importance of God's people to God. Now, touchstone number three, the Sermon on the Mount. The third place that we learn about enemies in Scripture is in what Jesus says about enemies in the Sermon on the Mount. We all remember uh, when Jesus says... You have heard it said, love your enemies, or love your neighbors and hate your enemies, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Okay, a very familiar passage from the Sermon on the Mount, a very familiar commandment. I'm actually worried that that commandment is so familiar that we don't appreciate how difficult it is to obey. Let me read the commandment for you again. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I'm supposed to love the person who's a total jerk to me? I'm supposed to love the person who stole my stuff? I'm supposed to pray for the person who's hurt my family? That's a tough commandment. And it is hardly any wonder that that commandment is given in a paragraph that ends this way. Okay, this is Matthew 5, 48. Jesus speaking to the crowd and during the Sermon on the Mount. He says, be perfect. <laughs> be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Which might make you think that you will get around to loving your enemies just about the same time as you start being as perfect as God. Because it's really hard. Jesus' standards presented in the Sermon on the Mount are unbelievably high. Anyone who thinks that Jesus was some kind of, you know, wishy-washy softy hasn't read the Sermon on the Mount. But the Apostle Paul, by the way, picks up this same theme in Romans chapter 12, another familiar passage. He says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them, do not repay anyone evil for evil. If your enemy is hungry, I love this one, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Now notice that both Jesus and Paul recognize that we're going to have enemies. That's just assumed. Both recognize that there are going to be miserable people in our lives who are seem determined to make our lives miserable. Who would know better than Jesus, by the way, Who would know better than Jesus, a man who was crucified for no reason at the age of 33, or Paul who was beheaded for no reason at the age of, I don't know, 50-something? Who would know better than these men 
what it means to have enemies. And about those enemies, Jesus says, love them. And Paul says, feed them. So let me get back to the Acts of the Apostles. In our reading, we hear about Ananias. You'll remember that Saul, the great Pharisee who's been persecuting the church and was responsible for the death of many Christians, was traveling to Damascus. He has legal papers to arrest Christians and to take them back to Jerusalem where they would be killed. Saul is a bad dude. He's an enemy of the church. He's an enemy of Christ. He's an enemy of God. But before Saul gets to Damascus, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, Jesus in his nuclear-powered, glowing, glorified, resurrected body shows up out of nowhere. He simply materializes there on the road. And Jesus in his body is so bright that he outshines the noonday sun. And Saul and all of his companions are knocked to the ground. Saul is temporarily blinded, and Jesus speaks to Saul, blind Saul, sitting on his butt on the ground, and he says, why are you persecuting me? Why are you being an enemy of the church? And then blind Saul is led by hand into Damascus, and he's taken to Judas's house on Straight Street, and he's there for three days. He's blind for three days. He's not eating anything, but he's praying. And during those three days, God makes a double appearance in two different parts of the city. He appears to Saul and tells him that someone named Ananias is going to come to him. And he appears to Ananias and he tells him to go talk to somebody named Saul. God tells Ananias to go and talk to the enemy. And to heal him. And to feed him. Sometimes God tells us to speak to people that we do not like. Sometimes God tells us to do good things for people who are our enemies. Jesus tells Ananias to go see Saul, and Ananias' reaction is understandable. He's worried. He's afraid. He thinks that going to see Saul is a crazy idea because Saul is a murderer. Because Saul hates Jesus. Because Saul hates Christians. Because Saul is the enemy. Why would I want to go see Saul? And Jesus says, go, go anyway, go because this man is my chosen instrument. Notice, by the way, that Saul doesn't choose Jesus, but Jesus chooses Saul. Jesus appears to Saul in his glorified body. That gets Saul's attention. That stops him from going in one direction and prepares him to head in another direction. And then Jesus uses Ananias to get Saul moving in that new direction. The direction that Jesus wants him to go. By going to Saul, Ananias becomes one link in a chain of events that led to Paul, Saul, going out to the farthest ends of the known world to proclaim the name of Christ. But that meant Ananias, in that moment, had to go and speak And be kind to someone who was his enemy. 
If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, there may be times in your life when you will be called by Jesus to speak to someone you do not like. And you may have very good reasons for not liking that person. That person may be your enemy. That person may be someone who has hurt you or your family in the past. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, Jesus may call you to speak to an enemy. Perhaps one of those people that you wrote down on your list a little earlier. Someone you don't like and with good reason because they're jerks. God may call you to speak to them. God may have a plan for those jerks. He might send you to that person to get the ball rolling in a different direction. That might happen to you. Now notice that God has plans for Saul, and Saul doesn't know anything about those plans. And Ananias doesn't know anything about those plans. Saul and Ananias, of course, know Saul's history. They know where Saul has been in the past. They know who he has been in the past. They know what he's done, but they don't know the future. They don't know what Jesus has in mind for Saul. We know the history of our enemies. We know what they've done to us. But Jesus knows the future of our enemies. And he may have plans for them. And those plans may involve us going to them. As followers of Christ, we need to remain open to the possibility that we might be part of God's plan of salvation for an enemy, for one of God's enemies. Sometimes our enemies are God's enemies. Not always, but sometimes. Now that may seem crazy. That may seem crazy that God would put us into that awkward position of having to reach out to someone who's been dangerous to us in the past. It might seem a little crazy that God would use us to help someone who's hurt us, to to befriend someone who has been an enemy to us. It may seem a little crazy, and yet that, that is precisely what Jesus asks Ananias to do, to go and talk with and to help a Christ hater and a Christian killer. But actually, crazy as that is, it shouldn't surprise us because Jesus is simply asking Ananias to do for Saul what Jesus did for Ananias. Jesus is asking us to do for our enemies what Jesus did for us. Romans 5.10 says, when we were God's enemies. Who's the we here? When we, Huntington Valley Presbyterian church members, when we were God's enemies, every person who's been redeemed began their story as God's enemy. When we were God's enemy, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. That means that Jesus died for me While I was still his enemy. That means that Jesus doesn't die for nice people. Jesus dies for jerks and scumbags. He dies for his enemies. 
So it should be no surprise that we as followers of Jesus would be called to do the exact same thing that Jesus did for us. We're called to go in love and mercy toward people who are our enemies. And I mean real enemies. I mean real jerks. We're called to go in love and mercy toward people who are our enemies to people who are enemies of the cross. Because that's how God changes enemies into friends. Now we can speculate all we want about the reasons why God would do such a thing. We can speculate about why Jesus comes to his enemies and saves them. We can speculate about why Jesus sends saved people to their enemies so that the enemies might be saved too. I can think of a few different reasons why God would operate in this way. But whatever the reasons are, what is crystal clear is that God commands us to pray For our enemies. Jesus says pray for those who persecute you. Matthew 5. 44. And so now as we close. And as we prepare to receive the Lord's Supper. That's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to pray for our enemies this morning. Would you join me in prayer? Let us pray. Lord Jesus, once we were your enemies, but now you call us friends. And the truth is that there are people in our lives who are not our friends, but who have been really bad to us. Maybe they've been bad to other people as well. Lord, you know who they are. You saw us think those names and write down those names. We pray that you would bless those people. Lord, we pray that you would look upon our enemies with favor. That you would be merciful to them. That you would show them your love. We pray this day that you would pour blessings into their lives. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would Call all enemies of the cross to you. I pray that all people who find the cross foolishness or an offense, I pray that they would learn to love it and cling to it. Lord Jesus, you have the name that is above every name. You're worthy of all worship and praise. And I pray that you would... uh, Make more worshipers for yourself. Bring greater glory to yourself. Lord, I pray that those who scoff at you and curse you and reject you today, I pray that tomorrow that they would be filled with the Holy Spirit and that they would become pillars in the church. 
I pray that those who reject your name today would be willing to die for your name tomorrow. Lord, bless our enemies. Protect them this day. Look upon them with mercy and love. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.